Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxane Panchassi. My guest today is Jérôme Bourdon, the author of Histoire de la Télévision sous de Gaulle. Now, the book was originally published in 1990, but today we'll be talking about a new expanded edition published by the Presse des Mines in 2014. Hi there, Jérôme. Hi. Could you begin by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on television and the media in France? Okay, well, I'm French originally, although I'm now based in, uh, in uh, Tel Aviv, Israel. I've been there for a number of years, but uh, I was looking for a topic for a PhD uh, in France, in, uh, and I was very interested in the media, and I chanced to, I just met someone called Jean-Noël Janenet, mm-hmm. who, was a, who was a historian who didn't work especially on TV, It was very interested. I was looking for someone to supervise me. It was very difficult. Mm. And it was difficult as well because, uh, let's say, classic traditional historians said, oh, you want to work on TV? Like, oh, interesting, but are you mad? <laughs> because there was, there, we were talking about the, the French intellectuals in those years, in 1986, let's say, and the level of content for t- even earlier, what am I saying, 82, 81, the level of, of content for television was still very high. It still is, but it was amazing. So it was very difficult, but I was also working at INA. I started working at INA, the National Institute of Audiovisual. I got a job there, and I had to find also a topic which was compatible with my job. And they were very interested in having someone working on the history of TV. We are talking about an institute which is part of public service broadcasting, and it was working in research. So they encouraged me, Janine accepted to supervise me. And then I found at INA, someone told me, oh, you want to work on the history of TV? There is a major trade unionist. Uh, she isn't alive anymore, but she left just boxes, you know, of archives. It's not even archives, documents, personal documents. It could be interesting to research. And I found this treasure, in my view as a historian, you know, old papers, mm-hmm. uh, about, about the development of French public television. Uh, from about 1955 up to 1970, about trade unions, but everything was there really, uh, because through trade unions, which were so important, you could find all the, the organized professions, the TV directors, les réalisateurs. So it was really uh, fascinating about the program management politics. And, uh, and then I decided to work on that. And I have to say, audiovisual archives were not accessible at the time. So, so paper was the only thing you could do. And of course, interviews, and I interviewed a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got started about the topic. And it became later on that at PhD and then that book. So the book, Jérôme, covers the years of de Gaulle's presidency from 58 to 69. But of course, the history of television and specifically of television in France predates 1958. So could you just give us a brief sketch of what television's story was in France before 1958? Uh, in 58 is really the year de Gaulle came back to power and the Fifth Republic started, and then television got started. Mm-hmm. It, it was about, you know, 13% of a household uh, equipped with television in 1958. It went up to 70% in 1970. It's 
the decade where De Gaulle was in power, or well, a little more, was exactly the time when television just took off very quickly. Mm-hmm. So it, it, that this conjunction is very interesting. Before that, uh, television got started very slowly. Uh, French historians of the time talk about the delay, but it's ridiculous because there are only two countries, actually, where television reached the majority of the population in 1960 and, or 58, and that was the UK and, and the US. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, France was going slowly, just like Italy, just like Germany, just like many, many countries. It, it took off very, very slowly television compared to the date when it was actually more or less invented, which is before the Second World War. So in TV, that, that's the main thing I can say about TV in France before 1958. And after 1958, in terms of growth, you said that in 1958, about 13% of, is it households that have a television? Yeah, a little so, less. And after that, how does the growth look um, in terms of jumps? Uh, you know, just if you can give a couple of examples of, let's say, where, where are we by the, en- by the time we get to the end of the period that the book covers in 1969, roughly? Well, we are, we, first of all, we are in 1969, we are, France is a country of television, mm-hmm. just like the whole of Western Europe and part of Eastern Europe. Uh, and other countries in the world, but mostly Europe, Europe became a continent of television, Western Europe, and France was part of that. And so every year you could see you got the statistics, people bought television just like, you know, a uh, case. Mm-hmm. It was it's really, in 1964, one million television sets were sold in France. You can imagine shops where people went went in and in and in and bought television sets <laughs> because it's, it's tied to a lot of factors, but very briefly, uh, economic growth. I mean, people had money to, to, to spend, uh, you know, refrigerators and not yet phones, not really in France. It started a bit later, but consumption was a major phenomenon of the time in television what at the, was at the center of this phenomenon. And uh, so it was, it was about, and then politically speaking, De Gaulle and, and the government encouraged television. They wanted People, to, they wanted television to develop. So there were links with the, uh, the electronic industry to encourage television. And the whole, the whole context was extremely favorable to the development of television. And one final thing is that there was one single channel which really dominated mm-hmm. and was really accessible to everyone. But in 1964, a, a second television start, uh, channel got started. And only a little after the end of the period I studied was 1972, at the very end of the year, you had the third television channel. So you've got, comparatively speaking, more and more hours of television, a second channel, and then television from uh, uh, not morning television yet, but until noon during the, and then during the whole afternoon, which was not true at the, end of, at the beginning of the period, but was true at the end and then later in the night until 11 or midnight. So it's also a question of the offer of television grew. Uh, comparatively to, to today, uh, it's ridiculous to say it's a, it's a huge growth, but at the time it was perceived as a major change in the offer of audiovisual images inside the homes. So early in the book, Jerome, you address a series of legislative and other reforms to television during the decade or so after 1958. Can you tell us about some of the most important of these reforms and specifically say a bit more about the statute of 1964? Well, it, it's a bit strange when, when, when you see that from, from, from today, 
Because at the time, and uh, one of the major sources I used, of course, was the print press, which, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot was written on TV. You have a feeling that a major reform is happening, and this is what the history of TV is about. And actually, the, the books I, I, I read about TV at the time were a lot written by, by legal experts, and it was just a chronology of major decrets, you know, mm-hmm. uh, statutes, uh, new laws, and everything. So it was important in the discourse. The content of those reforms, honestly, uh, and, and briefly, because if you go into details, it's amazing, <laughs> boring. I mean, because it's legal expertise. But, uh, the content of this reform, they didn't change. Basically, uh, television at the beginning of the period is a public administration controlled by the state. Especially finances are controlled by the state and it's a priori control. When you engage a major decision about spending money, you need the approval of, of, of the Minister of Information or one of his delegates or whatever. And, and the, 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 the staff, the personal is basically also under a public statute, not exactly, uh, uh, um, civil servants, but something very close to that, uh, very protected. This is true at the beginning and it's true at the end. So you wonder about the, what the major reforms are about. There were a few changes, and I'm just going to mention the, the status of 64, for example. At the time, everybody said, it's new. Uh, it's, it's, um, there's going to be a, a board of govern of, of, uh, un conseil d'administration, uh, um, um, a board of, sorry for the English, not a board of governors. They said at the time it's going to be like the BBC. It's going mm-hmm. to be a board of right. governors. That's going to be autonomy, the Minister of Information, which was called Alain Perfit. Uh, someone will talk later about, because it was a major character at the time, said it's a major reform. And, and the truth is that the, the governmental control didn't stop after that. It remained the same, especially about the daily newscast. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk about reform. There was a sim- something in, in, in words which might be interesting to, to note is that in the 64 uh, uh, law, there is, in the first article, there's a mention about the missions of the ORTF, it was called the Office of Radio Television Française, the Office of Radio and of French Radio and Television. Mm-hmm. And uh, they mentioned the need to inform and educate and, and, and to bring uh, information, uh, culture and education, culture and education and entertainment to the audience. This is directly inspired by the, the Royal Charter of the BBC from before the war. So you see the, that the BBC was important as a source of, infima- of, of inspiration, but it's very nice to have the words, you know, but the spirit and the daily working and the autonomy and the level of the license fee Everything was so different from, from British broadcasting. So there was very little to do with the BBC, actually. And it remained very much the same heavy but still uh, functioning uh, French uh, administrative body, public body. You devote uh, considerable attention, Jérôme, to, to those responsible for programming and producing what appeared on screen throughout the book. What can you tell us about the major changes that took place with respect to personnel in this era of professionalization after 1958? Okay. Uh, the, the, the main thing to, to, to mention, I think, especially from an Anglo-Saxon, at they saying French, you know, wrapping up together the US and the UK, but never mm-hmm. mind. I mean, uh, which is really important to underline is, is that in, 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 uh, in, in France, just like in part of Southern Europe, the major people who had influence on programs were not producers. They were realisateurs. They were the, the TV directors. Mm. 
those who were, and really there was an influence, both of the movies and all the, the notion of politic disorder about, you know, in cinema, the main character, the author is the director. And uh, that's well known of French movie historians. And it is still true to some extent for in cinema and France, when they develop, when television started developing, and that's a little before 58, they looked for a model. Who is making television? You know, that television is basically a collective enterprise. Many people make television together, but if you say who is the major character, it's obvious that even in, 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 at least in, in, in American television at the time, it's, it's the producer. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, at French TV uh, of the time, it's the réalisateur, it's the, the director. It's not only a question of, of, of television specifically, it's all the whole television culture is based on the idea of the artist, of the author, of the creator, you know, inspired and bringing major works of art to, to the public. And that was, that was transposed for television. Whether it was adapted to television is a different question. So... Anyway, in 58, it's the réalisateur, and, and this is really accepted by the whole of, of television, including the managers, the, the, the director general, the, the, the general director, the CEO, if you want, and, and all the people around him which, who were directly or indirectly appointed by the government. And, but it was accepted also by the rest of the personal. And what happened during the 60s is that slowly, but still they had power in 69, but the, the, the producers started to, to, to have more influence. They dreamed of having the influence of the, the realizateur. There, there was a meeting of, of uh, early in the 60s of a, an, a union of producers, which didn't really organize because they couldn't. They were too individualistic. And what was the major aim? They said, we need the status of director. We need to be recognized as a director to get power. So it's a, really a symptom of the place of the of directors in, in, uh, in French television. So in 65, they lost. There was a long uh, strike, which is really a part of the, the, the landscape of the history of television at the time, strikes. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, uh, managers in the government complained a lot, but they they lost the strike and they moved from being thirty or so directors to a bigger number, above a hundred. But still, they had what is called in France numerous clauses. If you want the close shop, I mean, they controlled more or less who could become a director, and so they had a lot of power on television until the end of the period, and they really started losing power only in the seventies. So a big part of the mandate of television in this period is the spread of information. And I guess I want to ask you, Jérôme, about what television's relationship to other media during this period uh, was, but also the way in which we might think of television uh, as or as not uh, a form of journalism. Um, I guess that for for this period, television is not considered, considered mainly as a form of journalism. Uh, although the, the newscast is, there is a daily newscast already at the beginning of the period. It got started in, in 1949. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, first of all, it's television. It's, it's, it's a medium in itself. And the distinction between genres or genres is not as important as, as it would be later. Mm-hmm. And for directors and for managers and for the people who make television, the main mission is to bring some form of culture to the audience. There is entertainment, there are game shows, but the main genres are about about culture and and education. That's the major ambition. So that's one thing to say about television. If you compare to other medium, obviously radio and the press are the medium of news. 
and and this is central. Uh, and why is television different from radio? While radio is part of the same body, mm. in principle, there is a monopoly of broadcasting of airwaves, a public monopoly during the whole period. But in the case of France, you have this strange uh, hypocrite system. Well, you have what is called the radio peripheric radio, private radio stations, who, uh, which broadcasted from outside France. Mm. But the waves could reach uh, the whole of the population. There was Radio Luxembourg, Europain, never mind the different stations. So people were used to, to, to a sense of competition in radio. And they had not like today, but they had like six, five radio stations. And so radio, public radio was very different from television because of that. They had they faced competition. They were more independent as far as news is concerned than television. So that isolated television even more, that, that specificity of radio, public radio being confronted to, to competition and private competition. So if you coming back to your question about the relation between television and different media, mm-hmm. uh, television was special in every respect because it was a fully public medium because it had no competition at all and not even internal competition because the second channel started in in 64 wasn't really important in 1970 there was no advertising uh, at all it started in 68 october 68 at the end of the period so the, the public uh, funding was was uh, what there was so uh, commercials could not affect programming. There was no sense you should reach people because because advertisers needed to be satisfied. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a very specific medium. In short, I think for a lot of people, well, for myself at least, there is a fairly strong association uh, between the ORTF uh, and the idea of censorship and state control and uh, I guess forms of propaganda um, in this period. So so what can you tell us about that? Uh, it, 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 it's tricky to, to give a simple answer because on the one hand, it's true uh, that there was a lot of control. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then this was emphasized later on. This is where legends started to form by many journalists. Because, you know, when, when you, you want to say, oh, now we are doing so well, it's very easy to, to, to create a dark legend about the past. And it happens all the time in politics, especially. So journalists say, oh, we were not free. We're like slaves at the time of Perfit. Perfit was the Minister of Information for mm-hmm. the role from 62 to 66 with a short interruption. So it was a major character. And it's true that there was a lot of governmental control on the news and some current affair programs, but not on the whole of TV. There were zones of freedom. So, because you can read in some books, television was controlled by the government, and this is nonsense. The news was controlled by the government, and it's true on a daily basis, not because the minister was was doing the news, but making the daily news. Journalists were, were doing that, you know. But every morning there was a meeting, and this is where censorship is, is really based, was really based. In the office, Rue de Grenelle in Paris, in an office where I went, uh, at, at, at the Ministry of Information, which is also a strange thing, a Ministry of Information, mm-hmm. which was uh, uh, cancelled, suppressed in 1969, but a uh, Ministry of Information, and there was a meeting where the head of, of TV news and radio news as well, but TV news was more affected for the reason that I, I mentioned, for the reasons I mentioned, uh, there was a, around the table, there, were, there was a representative of each minister, 
And he said, it would be good if we talk about this and that, and uh, this, uh, the government decided this and that. Could you mention that in the news? They didn't give orders. And journalists were more or less flexible, and there was, there were a little, there was a little room for maneuver. So it wasn't exactly directly, it wasn't a dictatorship. Let's say it was a weak authoritarian regime. It was said that part of the Gaullist regime certainly was not democratic. That you can say. And so over time, does censorship increase over the course of the period that you're looking at? I mean, is that too simplistic a, a, a way of describing the change over time? Uh, no, it, it, it decreased, actually. Okay. Because it was very, in, in 58, is strong. There is no formal system, but in 58, uh, first we are in the midst of the Algerian war. And TV started growing, and ministers were aware of that. So they controlled the news through different ways. They appointed the head of news who knew they had to be very careful about what they would say. And they appointed, at the very, especially 58, 59, journalists who were Gaullists were appointed naturally, if I can say. Mm. Was head of news were aware that it was better to appoint uh, Gaullists. So there was a lot of control. We found in the archives later on, because I, could, I didn't have access to that, but more recently working on a TV program, because I worked on TV program as well. I, I made quite a few documentaries, which helped me a lot to understand television. But anyway, working on a TV program in 2006 or seven, I found a TV program, TV news, and really a, a story in the newscast, uh, which says, and uh, here is, and it, it's about a trip of, it's 62, and De Gaulle is traveling to France, as he did a lot, you know, in, in the provinces. Mm-hmm. And he's arriving in a small city, and, and there goes more or less the, the, the voiceover, the journalist. Uh, and here is uh, De Gaulle coming, and the, the crowd is very moved. They are applauding our president, and only those who doesn't want to see and refuse to understand will not understand the great the greatness of blah 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 you know mm. so it was it was propaganda it was pure propaganda so you had that and at some time especially again 58 62 63 from 65 your formal system of control i described it was very very uh, uh, strong so there was there was a lot of control in 65 uh, and then 65 it started weakening a bit you could hear a little more about strikes you heard very little about the opposition, and that was not democratic. And the, the Socialist Party, the SFU at the time, uh, complained in Mitterrand, complained a lot. And the communists, you didn't hear anything about the communists on TV except negative stuff. I'm just a caricature. Basically, that was there was, mm-hmm. uh, really. So, but still in 65, there was a presidential election. And uh, the first uh, presidential election with a universal vote, with a, with a franchise, everybody voted. Mm-hmm. And the goal had to, to confront, and the law gave two hours to every candidate for the first round of the election. So people saw for two hours, uh, uh, they saw, uh, um, um, sorry, Le Canuet was for the reformator, they saw all the candidates, uh, uh, Mitterrand, of course. So it was very impressive to, you know, to hear the voice of the opposition for some time. So it changed something mm-hmm. for television. And after that, television could not go back to being the Gaullist uh, informa- uh, information medium it used to be. So there was some, slowly, slowly, there was a little change. Still, it was basically controlled by the government, and it remained a very Gaullist medium until 1969. 
That's really interesting. I just want to follow up on something you mentioned uh, in your answer there, Jérôme, which is the relationship of Paris to the to the provinces. So is it would it be fair to say that television uh, in this period is very Paris centric just in terms of what it's beaming out to the rest of France? Or is there uh, significant representation of the regions of France on TV uh, during this? Period? Yeah, yeah. Uh- Basically, and that's one thing which, which uh, amazed me when I looked in the archives, is that how, how centralized, how Jacobin television <laughs> was, really. And from every point of view, there, there, was, there were some means of production in the province, in the major cities. You have transmitters and, and you, have some stu- you had some studios, mm. but they were controlled from Paris. There were some newscasts, um, uh, which actually started broadcasting regional newscasts which, which uh, were, uh, were uh, got started broadcasting between 63 and 65. Every newscast at the beginning when it was inaugurated, the first newscast, you know, who was there to say, dear viewers, here is our new newscast, Alain Perfit, Minister of Information, not a journalist, hmm. coming and speaking to the viewers. We still we have this in the archives. Again, I found this later. I have to say that the audiovisual archives confirmed completely what was in the written archives mm. from that point of view. But it's just amazing to see it. So this is a democracy. <laughs> What's happening? So he went to, he went to Strasbourg, he went, I mean, Perfit, to Marseille, the Gaullist Minister of Information, and talked to the viewers. And then the newscast was controlled by someone who was appointed from Paris. And so there was no autonomy until really regional autonomy started weekly in France. I mean, I'm talking about TV in the 70s until Giscard d'Estaing, who was elected president in 64. And it really started after 81 when Mitterrand came to power. But it's a different story. Mm-hmm. I want to come back, Jérôme, to, to these directors who play such an important role in this history in this period. So I have a few questions. You know, what was the relationship between sort of more documentary programming that wasn't necessarily news, but was more, had a more kind of documentary bent and fiction on TV. Um, who were these directors? Where did they come from? Who, if you want to give us an example, let's say of, a, of, of some of the important figures in this period and what changed sure. over time from 1958 to 1969? Okay. So the, the, the directors, for one thing, there were few, as I told you, there were in, in 1965, we are like 30 Directors really control most of television programming, not the news, not current affair programs, uh, which you might say a word about. But anyway, apart from that, really, when, when it's about making a documentary and a fiction, and even for some for for some uh, for some entertainment, but the noble programs, the major programs, are controlled by, t- by by directors. And when there is a TV a TV show like uh, uh, entertainment, mostly uh, major game shows, there were no talk shows at the time. Director, directors had a, had a say; they could say something about the way it was shot and everything. So they were very important. Who were they? Uh, that they had different backgrounds. Uh, quite a few studied at the IDEC, at the uh, Institut des Hautes Études Cinématographiques, at the Institute for, for uh, High Studies in Cinema, which was mm-hmm. created just after the Second World War, which is now in France at the FEMIS. Right. Uh, and so they were trained for cinema, some of them, So and they dreamed of cinema. And uh, some of them were came from theater and learned to do television on the job. So... Of course, television didn't exist, so they discovered television. 
from a social, uh, I think, although there, there is no sociological uh, study, specific sociological study of that, but my intuition and from all the, all the people I've interviewed, I've interviewed some, some 16 uh, directors uh, or a little more. Uh, they don't come from the higher bourgeoisie. They come from the provinces. They, are not, they don't have high education. Mm. And from politically speaking, they are definitely left-wing. It's very difficult to find a right-wing uh, director. I couldn't find any among the ones I interviewed. They are, you know, that, that some of them are communists. They are what that's called Compagnon de Road, close to the Communist Party. They are center of left. They are uh, 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 chrétiens de gauche, left-wing Christians. And they all have an ideal, which is that television should bring, I'm getting back to this, it's really public service in that sense, not, not in the legal sense, but as a professional ideal. They think that TV should bring culture to, to, to the masses, <laughs> to the audience. And that's what they dream of doing. So when they do drama, they do very little uh, popular television drama, what is called Théâtre de Boulevard in France. They do, they adapt. They do a lot of literary and, and theatrical adaptation. And the major genre for television from, let's say, 52, 3 until 64, 5 was called La Dramatique. Basically, it's the drama, dramatic program, the drama program, and it became a noun, as in other countries it did. And it's a, a it's drama, and it's the idea that it's looked a bit like theater and inspired by, by classical drama. And there was a bit of original writing, and directors worked with some some writers, some uh, screenwriters, some, uh, yeah, some screenwriters, but those didn't have any power. They were submitted to the power of the, of the directors. So that was, that is basically what, what the, the directors, what, this is what they were. You go on, Jérôme, in the book to talk about co-productions, and I guess I want to ask you about the relationship, more about the relationship between television and the cinema, and particularly with respect to these directors, like, what, was television working in television considered a fall from theater and cinema? Did people move back and forth between the different uh, venues, working on film but also working on TV? Or was I want I want to assume that um, from the perspective of you know French high cinema that TV looks it, that, that that French high cinema looks down on TV? But did people move back and forth? They didn't move back and forth, and they couldn't. Mm. Uh, very quickly, there was there was a strong uh, division between cinema and television mm. for a host of reasons. Uh, like in any country, cinema people are afraid of the competition of television. They didn't want to work for TV. They didn't want the means of, of cinema to be used for TV, just like it was in the beginning in the U.S. before the, the whole apparatus of Hollywood, a part of it started working for TV. Mm. But uh, what is different in France is the French elitism around cinema, the sense that cinema was becoming in the 50s part of high culture, that cinema directors became auteurs, you know, with mm-hmm. all the recognition, uh, which went with uh, that, that word. Uh, very quickly, at the end of the 50s, the status of, of television is established as, as a, as a low-brow uh, uh, medium, a very popular medium. Uh, and it's true it was a popular medium. I mean, people from with a little education made huge sacrifices to buy a TV set. And TV broadcast, broadcasted uh, entertainment as well. We'll come back to that later. There were some producers, some gauges and everything. But anyway, the so cinema people viewed, viewed TV as a, as a competitor and as a low-bro uh, um, uh, uh, medium. 
And uh, so there was a few people who started, who, who tried to promote television. A few uh, television critics in the early 60s tried to promote TV as something interesting, as a new art form. They insisted on, on, on liveness as a very important characteristic of television, as happened in, other, in many other countries, by the way. But uh, liveness disappeared from drama, anyway, for drama in, in like, say, in 62, 63. And, uh, and in general... Uh, television didn't find any academic or educated or, or support from the from the uh, cultural elites in France. So all the attempts to forward to, to forward any any cooperation between TV and cinema failed. There were two famous examples. One is Jean Renoir did a film for TV called mm-hmm. Le Testament du Docteur Cordelier. The, 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 the Will of Doctor Cordelier. I'm not sure about the, the English title. Mm-hmm. It's part of of uh, of Renoir's, uh, uh, you know, film record, Jean Renoir. But still, it was done, nobody, few people know actually in cinema, it was done with, with the means of television, with a very special camera system made mm-hmm. for television, with television technicians, and it didn't work out. There was a huge, between the unions, it didn't work out. The people from the unions of cinema said, we don't want the people from television working there. The people from the unions, there was also a question of, of you know, trade unions fighting each other. So we don't want cinema people there. So and 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 Renoir did that film for television, and then it didn't work out. There was an, an issue of the Cahiers du Cinéma. People who work on French cinema will, will remember. But in '61, devoted only to television, with television people writing about uh, about uh, uh, television people writing in the Cahiers du Cinéma about television, defending television. Just one issue. Many people inside Le Cahier uh, thought it was a mistake, wondered what it was all about. <laughs> and then there was a very famous uh, a quote by uh, Marcel Bluval, a very famous at the time uh, TV director, uh, really a strong character, who did very, who did very interesting stuff from a, from a cinematographic point of view, which is now forgotten because nobody cares about what television did in, among cinema people. What can you do? You know, some art forms fail. But anyway... Uh, Bluffal said to Truffaut, they had, they had a discussion after the issue of the Cahiers du Cinéma. Uh, you know, the links between Truffaut and the Cahiers du Cinéma, again, cinema, mm-hmm. the scholars would know about this. François Truffaut, the director, and uh, mm-hmm. Bluffal said to Truffaut, uh, you are against le cinéma de papa. You are against uh, the, cine- the traditional cinema. You want to do new wave, basically. Mm-hmm. The term existed at the time. But the way you people are, you, 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 the new wave directors, you are going to do le cinema de fils à papa. You are going to do a bourgeois cinema. You are, and while we TV directors, we are doing movies for the people. We care about the people. You claim to do, you know, new cinema. You are going to do very bourgeois avant-garde cinema. And I'm afraid to say that Bluval, in some way, was uh, right, because uh, new wave cinema mm-hmm. certainly was not cinema for the masses. So there were many things, sorry, but there were many, many, many things which, which created a huge divide between cinema and television at the time. So let's return to some of that other programming that you've mentioned a couple of times, Jérôme, the, the game shows, the variety, the feuilleton. Um, what can you tell us about uh, what are some of the most interesting aspects of that history in this period? Yeah, what's interesting is that popular television existed. Because again, when, when I read, when I started working, I read in, in, in 1986, seven books which were written on television by journalists. They mentioned directors and, you know, uh, uh, highbrow drama and culture and education. This, this is what television should do. And this is what it did. And it doesn't do it anymore. And what a pity. Mm-hmm. But television did popular 
programming and a lot of it very early on for for a host of reasons because basically uh, although there were there was very little quantitative measurement of the audience it came later uh, popular taste could be felt uh, by the way people reacted by letters to television by what the press wrote uh, when the first popular game show started uh, broadcasting and there were popular game shows already in 54 mainly in 60, 56 and only in the 60s Bags of letters reach, you know, the headquarters of television saying we want to participate. When when a, a host said on, on, on screen, we want people to participate, write to us. People wrote in, 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 in huge quantities, bags of letters arriving. So they said there is something called popular television. This is what people, it never happened for to, 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 to drama directors. Nobody said, oh, what if people wrote saying it's, it's a wonderful, you know, play. We saw last night this, this adaptation of Stendhal and Racine was wonderful. But of course it was a minority which, which was really excited about that. And the majority was a lot more excited by, by popular shows like the first game shows and the first or so huge entertainment shows, very popular, something called Interville, which was uh, adapted from a, an Italian game show, which was really a competition between two cities, which was very, very popular. It's not a quiz. It's a very, very spectacular game shows with cows and, and swimming pool and, and lots of cream and what can I say? Also, anything, all of this together, and you get an idea of what Interville is all about, you know. So this show was hugely popular in France. It moved around France. It was, it was shot, uh, it was uh, broadcast live, uh, the competition from one city to the other. So the provinces participated in that way. Mm -hmm. And then you've got regular quiz as well. Quiz shows started and were popular without advertising, without, without, without commercials. And the people who made this, the producers, knew they had something. They came from commercial radio which, as I told you, existed in France at the time, and they wanted to, 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 to make some television. They knew it would be popular. They traveled a bit. That Some of them were aware about American television uh, or even popular game shows in, in other countries. And what happened to them is that they, they, did, they made some television. They made some very popular shows, but they didn't have power inside television. The technicians preferred to work for uh, prestigious directors because they thought the prestige was there. They weren't aware of the power of popular television at the time. So it's strange. They had much popularity outside and not much respect inside, although television felt it needed them. You're talking, Jérôme, about the popularity of different shows, and you mentioned these letters uh, and, and the press as evidence of what people thought of TV can you say a little bit more about reception and what we know, what we can know about reception in this period and audience response to, to what's on television? Uh, it's, it's really the, the tricky part. I mean, writing about the, the history of audiences in general in media studies, when, mm. you, when you go back in time, uh, writing about audiences is very difficult. It's, it's not a surprise if the first major book about the history of audiences in the U.S. Uh, uh, was published in, in 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we know... We know uh, we know little, because there are some figures, but they are a bit meaningless. Uh, with my co a colleague of mine called uh, Cecile Merdel, we researched the history of audiences a lot. Mm -hmm. We found a lot of reports, but the reports uh, give some figures. Again, when you have only one channel, what do you know? Mm -hmm. So you need what is called qualitative research. So you have some reports, and what you see, what you find in these reports is that they, they, they did some research. They sent some, some, uh, 
some people uh, do, do some surveys, interviews, and they collected and summarized some interviews. And these are in the archives. You learn probably a bit more about the interviewers but the, than about the interviewees because you see that people are looking for, for cultural goodwill, as, as Bourdieu would, would put it, you know, la, la bonne volonté culturelle. Mm. They, they, they want people to show that they like drama, they, they want more documentaries, that they want culture, even in, in a game show. So on the other end, you realize in this, when you, when you, when you read some of those reports, that there is, there is sort of a clash between what television, at least the, the people who had power inside television, dreamed of doing and what many people among the uh, audience uh, wanted. And one example, a good example is, is uh, a broadcast of, of uh, the Persians, Les Pers, uh, mm-hmm. the, the classical uh, play of uh, traditional Greek uh, uh, um, a drama from the antiquity. And uh, this was broadcast in 62. It's still in the archives. It's very impressive. It's a very impressive, interesting piece. I'm tempted to say a piece of art, except that it's not an art history because it's television. <laughs> anyway, so there was an original music score and a very interesting, uh, uh, it was, the, the direction was very interesting, but someone called Jean Prat, the press was enthusiastic, most of the press, and it's an amazing original piece. And then in the report, you see that they interviewed people who said, it's so obscure, we don't understand a thing, and people left the show, and many people stopped uh, viewing and went to something else. They couldn't zap <laughs> that one channel, but they went doing something else. But they just dropped it. So you realize, and that's one one small example of of that tension between what popular audiences wanted and what television uh, really was was trying to give. Uh, and, and, and misunderstanding basically between the establishment of television and and its audience. So I want to come back, Shivam, to this, the introduction of this second channel, and that's in 1964, yeah? Yeah. Um, so what, apart from the increased quantity of programming that must come with two channels, what does this change? I mean, what's the distribution of programs across the two channels? What are, what's the relationship of one to the other? What, is, what does it change yeah. to have two channels? Well, when you study the history of the second, the short history for my period, the second channel, it's very interesting to see the debates about the, the, the relations between both channels. Because when there was only one channel and the monopoly, uh, uh, the people who did programming, of course, they thought the news, the news stabilized at eight and it was clear there was the newscast, there was a major program, there was something different, a bit more esoteric later on. There were some popular television programs at, at 8.30, right? It was it, it, during what was not called prime time. Uh, this would come in French later, prime mm-hmm. time. It was called Les Heures de Grande Écoute, but still, it didn't matter very much. But still, there was a sense of programming, but it, it went on very without any major debate. When there's a second channel, people started asking, what is going to be the relation between those channels? And, and they started with complementarity. They said both channels should complement each other. So they started putting, you know, when there was a, a very, a very they, they, they sensed that some programs were more popular than others, despite what I said before. So a major, uh, uh, you know, entertainment programs, variety show at 8.30, they said we'll have something more cultural on the second channel. And basically the second channel started as, as a, as a complement to the first channel. <laughs> what happened, it's very interesting about television as a medium, is that people working for the second channel said, listen, we don't want to be a complement. We don't want to make prestigious program. We want to have an audience. 
And it changed something about the way the audience was measured because from 65, the head of television, the director general, general, general the director general, uh, said, I want to know about the audience of both channels. I want to know uh, who goes to watch the first and the second channel. So they started some phone surveys with a very weak statistical basis, but never mind. Every morning he got on his, on his desk, you know, a piece of paper saying these are the audiences of the first and the second channel. <laughs> so there was a sense that competition was there that, that to get to a sense of, of legitimacy, people working in television needed a sense of, of quantitative audience. Um, so it changed something. And then later on in 65, 66, there was a change at the management of television. Then the new manager for the second channel said, listen, we are going to do popular programming as well, more popular programming. And he did something interesting coming back to, to the power of different professions. He looked for producers. He said, I want some popular shows every week and I need producers. Popular is not as in today, you know, very popular television series because long series, drama series didn't exist in French television. So he had, he had, a, he had a, what he called popular was, for example, a film, cinema film followed by a debate every week. Mm. It was called the dossier de l'écran, the files of the screen, so to speak. And the debate is not something highly popular, but it started with a film. So he, he changed the relation with cinema as well. He had a current affair program at 8.30, which he wanted to be attractive as well. And he called some popular journalists from the press to do this. And so on. And, and he had also an entertainment program. So the second channel is not a question of quantity. It changed the way television was conceived at the time, although uh, the full-fledged effects of this would be felt only much later. You have a chapter, Jérôme, where you talk about uh, engineers, and I guess I want to ask you about what you have to say about television engineering and engineers in this period, and also maybe if you could say a little bit more about the technical aspects of the history that you're looking at. Okay, so I, I think that, that it's really, when we, when we look at television from, from today, even from France, away from the, from the U.S., which is so, so different anyway, but uh, uh, probably the... the Technical differences are, are the most difficult to understand because it was so different. Mm. The main thing I would say is, is that television needed a lot more people than it does today. Automation was a new thing. Uh, there were no computers. started mm. only in the 70s, huge, big machines, not, not personal computers. So there were a lot of transmitters, and in each transmitter, there were people. Today's terrestrial transmitters are automated, most of them. So you, you, you get down there, there is a problem. So there was an army of people, and it was called that way in a metaphor. They said the army, the technical services of the ORTF, that, they were the major services as far as the number of people was concerned. When technicians went on strike, you know, well, they went on strike, and they could just stop the whole of television. And engineers, so and engineers were very important because technical research was very important because the most, although they imported a lot of lots of of, of material from from of, of machines from different countries, uh, the VCR from for for example is an American invention from '55 which was imported to Europe. But transmitters, uh, TV sets, many cameras, all this was made in France. There was a sense of you know national glory about about. 
technology, which is very French, which is very typical of French engineers moving to the Concorde and, and all that. There were m- many stories, including stories of glorious failures and the Minitel and, and, and so on and so forth. But all this means that technicians were important. They were organized as a pyramid. There was a, a, a small group of engineers uh, trained at the National School of, of, of Telecommunications and at Polytechnique and uh, Grand École, which is so important in the French uh, social hierarchy. And those people mattered. And engineers mattered because also they had an ideal of public service, which is so strange to us to connect you know, technology and public service. But what, what do I mean by that? They thought television should give an excellent signal, the same one, that it should reach everyone on the whole national territory. So the first thing to do was to expand the network of transmitters of the first channel to reach the whole territory with an excellent signal and then move to a second channel. <laughs> so there was no notion that, you know, there could be many channels. I think they knew that you could have, you know, three, four, five, six channels, although it, it took some time. But the excellence of television, the technological excellence, came before, much before any notion of quantity of programming. And that was part of the public service ideal. So this is really strange to us, seen from today. <laughs> So covering the period of uh, de Gaulle's uh, presidency as, as it does, the book necessarily deals with May 68. Um, and so I guess I have a few questions along those lines. What, what do you have to say about the period sort of on the eve of 68? Um, what was television's role in 68 and how did 68 change or impact the history of television? Well, before 68, before May 68, this is well known, uh, I guess, uh, from your audiences, that nobody foresaw uh, 68. There's a famous sentence by Pierre Vianson Ponte, a major journalist writing in Le Monde, you know, French is born. So uh, I think a month before 68, I'm not quite sure about the day, but anyway, not, not much before. Anyway, so 68 to France by surprise, to the goal by complete surprise. Uh, that's one thing. One explanation that there are thousands of books about about 68 and not only in France. It was a, a world uh, or at least a Western uh, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But anyway, a Japanese as well. Never mind. But anyway, for 68 in France, now uh, many historians consider that the, the information policy of the goal was part of the explanation that people felt repressed. Like the sense that there was no freedom of expression was very strong. And it was true in general. It was a very self-censored society where the Catholic Church still had much influence. Um, and television reflected this. Mm. Uh, sense of a lack of freedom on television was really very, very strong. And television reached the majority of the population at the time. So television demonstrated the lack of, of freedom of expression, although there were a few changes I mentioned. So that's one thing. And I think people inside television felt that television also was controlled and wanted to change. And they felt, especially the journalists and the people who did counter programs, felt that the image of television was connected to the government. Uh, there were the famous posters, you know, of mm-hmm. uh, uh, the atelier of the workshops of, of the students in 68, where television is represented with the goal, you know, and the ORTF, uh, television considered as, as a tool for the goal to, 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 uh, to, to wield, to, to use for his own power. So... Television was questioned vividly very early on in, in, in May 68. And then inside television, uh, 
Television took time to, to join uh, the movement because people were scared. They knew they were under control. So in the first demonstration, there was a first text signed by a small group of not the, 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 the newscast journalists who were really controlled, but the producers of the major current affairs programs. Uh, which were very prestigious and had some autonomy compared to, to the news. And then, and the directors as well were quite left-wing, as I told you. And slowly, but very slowly, the whole of the ORTF joined the movement. But the fact that it took time shows how controlled it was. They were scared. They organized uh, a lot. Of, at the end, eventually, they did organize... Um, um, uh, many uh, uh, specific movements. There was a journalist who organized what he called Operation Jericho, going around the, the, the main building of the ORTF, which is now La Maison de la Radio, the house of, the, of radio in Paris, you mm. know, to demonstrate and to say this is, and he called it Operation Jericho, like this, the walls are going to fall, as in the Bible, you know. Mm. So the walls didn't fall in the end. Uh, so the whole of television and, and public radio went on strike, except a group of people and, uh, which were, remained faithful to the government and broadcast a TV newscast until the very end from a, a studio which was specifically built for this under the Eiffel Tower. I guess it's still there. Not inside the main uh, buildings, which are controlled by the by the people, the persons who are the strikers, the people who are on, on strike. So, and in the end, at the end, when when people when De Gaulle gets back into power, uh, he wants to control television. Uh, the police uh, comes into the major transmitters, into the offices, and some people are fired right away. Hmm. And De Gaulle wanted some people to be fired. And it, this shows that people became aware of the, of the power of television as never before, including De Gaulle. So uh, among governing circles, including the opposition, television became, at the, at the, from 68, it's clear that if you want to have power in France, you must, if not control television, you must have some influence on television. So television be, became a major political issue ever since. So as I mentioned at the outset, Jérôme, um this book is a, a new edition of, of one that you published, uh, well, about 25 years ago now, um, and one that was based on your doctoral thesis, as you mentioned earlier. Um, so why a new edition? What's new about this edition? And why now? Uh, why a new edition? Well, uh, honestly, I just found out the book was, was out of print. And uh, I asked a few people, and at the, at the press, they mean they told me you would be interested uh, because although quite a few books were printed on television, there is something uh, uh, you did which is still worth uh, uh, printing and being read. And I think mm -hmm. that when I consider uh, uh, the book, uh, I really think that the whole parts about the professionals and their influence is still new in a way. There was mm -hmm. no further research about these groups of people I mentioned. The history of producers was researched a bit. Uh, TV hosts were researched by very good uh, sociologists, by uh, Pasquier and Chalvon in a, in a very good book called Drôle de Star, Funny Stars, in 88. Uh, in eight, so a little later, sorry, in 1990. But there's, we don't, about the structure, the organization of television, really not much has been written since. Why? Because I think people are still fascinated by the images. Mm -hmm. And in addition, the archives uh, in France 
have been open to the public, the researching public, since 1992. There was a new law only for the future, but still the INA, which, which uh, manages the archive, decided to make the past accessible as far as possible. A lot has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the archives became, became available. So a lot of research has been done on, on different TV genres from the images from the ar- and the sounds from the archives. So this is good and it's fascinating. But in my view... Uh, for, for one thing, the research is not always historical enough, and it's not connected enough to the structures. I'm convinced that media researchers worry about content a lot and not about, about organizations, about institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think this, is, uh, this was the contribution of my book. So that's the reason why it was reprinted. What is new? I changed the original text. I corrected the mistakes which some people pointed out over the years. There were a few mistakes. I shortened a few chapters which were a bit, a bit long, which I was told were a bit long, especially details about trade unions and everything. Mm-hmm. Although in my view, there is a lot to be done there in research in the original text, maybe. And then I added a, a lengthy uh, uh, state of the art about television research uh, at the beginning of the book to contrast what I did and what has been done since. Yeah, could you say a little bit more about that? The what? How has television changed, and how has the scholarship on the history of television changed since you initially published the book? Uh, I think a, a lot has changed. So I'm going to point out just one one factor which I think is crucial and, and goes beyond France is that scholarship. The scholarship on on television is being internationalized in the recent years. Uh, the whole question of national specificity specificity is 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 uh, is crucial, and I think that I overestimated, I wrote so in the introduction, in the new introduction, national specificity. I mean, in, in many, many ways, people people mention governmental control as something uh, terribly French or horribly French or whatever. And it's true that it was there. But I worked on, on the history of European, Western European television a lot since. So, And it was very similar to the situation in Italy. They're extremely similar in many, many ways. So that's one comparison we should make. In general, the idea that people want to control the news and they leave more uh, leeway to other genres is true in very different television contexts, including in Brazil for TV Globo, which, is, which was a major private network where uh, drama had more uh, room for maneuver than, than news and where the head of Globo said something very similar to what De Gaulle said about directors. De Gaulle said about directors that they should be left uh, alone at some point. They, they make good television, although they are left-wing. And Marino in Brazil said, you should left my communists alone. This is, so I'm, going, I'm not going to quote the original Portuguese, but anyway. So that it's very interesting to, to make international comparisons. And one, one final example about international comparisons is about the invention of... of of programs and, and what was not called formats at the time, in France anyway, uh, dispositive ideas from program. I assume that many ideas were original because they came out in France, they were criticized or, you know, reviewed as original. And then since I interviewed people and I found out that some ideas came out broadly at the same time or a few months one after the other in two countries, and it's obvious because the ideas are very specific, really, that someone traveled and saw something mm-hmm. and just imitated it. And so the whole story of formats and programming has to be rewritten very carefully using lots of, of comparative history. And we'll find out that national television, especially in those countries, you know, where it started together and which compared each other, national television is never as specific as, as it assumes to be. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Well, Jérôme, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I just have one, one last question for you, which is, what, what are you working on now? 
Uh, oh, I'm working on uh, completely different uh, stuff. I did work a lot on comparative, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, television, television history. I still work on this with a group of colleagues, but there, there is a group called the European Television History Network, <laughs> which I'm a part of. We have a journal online with excerpts of archives. We are trying to promote a new concept of, of journal on television called VIEW, the European Journal of Television History and Culture. There is a little bit on, on, on France as well there, but it's really, it's really transnational. And now, precisely, I am working on a comparison about the discourse on the Internet and on, on the print, and I'm comparing two communication revolutions. And what does it mean to talk about the Internet and print as a communication revolution? So it's really a far cry from, from French television. Well, I just want to thank you so much for, for writing the book and for bringing out this new edition and for talking with me about it today. Thank you. 